Dr. Andrea Wolf is the director of the New York Mesothelioma Program at the Mount Sinai Health System, which provides comprehensive, multidisciplinary clinical care for patients with suspected or diagnosed malignant pleural mesothelioma. She is interviewed by Shannon Sinclair, the Patient Services Director at the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. In this episode, they discuss the mesothelioma program at Mount Sinai in New York City, including treatment options offered at that center. Dr. Wolf emphasizes the multidisciplinary nature of the program by touching on all aspects of care such as oncology, radiation oncology, surgery, and clinical trials. MesoTV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization, provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bristol-Myers Squibb, NovoCure, Merck, The Gory Law Firm, TCR Square, AstraZeneca, Early Lucarelli Sweeney and Misenkothen. Visit curemeso.org to learn more. Hi everybody, thank you for jumping on to this MesoTV episode. Today, we are fortunate enough to have Dr. Andrea Wolf from Mount Sinai with us. Um, she has started the New York Mesothelioma Program at Mount Sinai, and she's currently the director of that program as well. Um, Dr. Wolf, if you would just introduce yourself and let us know um, what you do and where you're at. All right, thank you. Thanks so much, Shannon. Uh, my name is Andrea Wolf. I'm a thoracic surgeon who's been in practice for 10 years here in New York. Um, I'm the director of the New York Mesothelioma Program at Mount Sinai. We see patients as a multidisciplinary team. I'm the surgeon. I have medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, uh, social workers, oncogeneralists, um, as well as the possibility of referral to psychiatry and other support. Um, patients are also offered opportunities to enroll in clinical trials. I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you, Shannon, for organizing this. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to get a little background on your surgical approach and such, and then we'll kind of jump into what clinical trials you do have um, available right now. So I guess I wanted to know, first of all, what is your surgical approach to pleural mesothelioma? Okay, great question. So the first step in determining if somebody is a surgical candidate and the surgical approach is just making sure and confirming it is mesothelioma. Um, sometimes other pleural tumors um, or other cancers can go to the pleural uh, space. So the pleura is the lining of the lung and the chest wall. And um, I do, uh, it, the treatments are so vastly different that the surgical approach to mesothelioma is really only relevant to mesothelioma, um, except in cer certain circumstances. Um, so once we've confirmed the diagnosis, um, most patients sent to a surgeon are at least candidate are generally candidates for surgery. It's a, it's a matter of approaching it carefully, making sure a surgery would benefit them um, and making sure they can tolerate surgery. And so what I mean by benefit for mesothelioma um, characteristics that uh, confer better survival are, are, are the ones that we think would do best with surgery in the context of other therapies or multimodal therapy. Um, in terms of 
who would be a surgical candidate, it's a person who has disease confined to the space that we can operate on, which is the same chest. Um, in other words, if somebody has disease in the rare circumstance where it goes to other organs, it, it, it is uh, unlikely that that person would benefit, never say never or always, um, but it's less likely that they would benefit from surgery, certainly not in the first uh, kind of grand scheme. Um, we do have some patients um, that who have treated over the years who have had mesothelioma on both sides. It's extremely unusual. So in cer some circumstances, we might treat uh, both sides, but generally speaking, it's for disease confined to one side in the chest. So there are imaging and, uh, and an evaluation that we do in order to make sure of that. Um, and then the ability to tolerate surgery. So that's from a heart and lung standpoint and sort of all the organs working together. Um, there's no one thing that would make somebody not a surgical candidate. Um, it's just a matter of making sure you can get them through surgery, that you tailor the surgery to them. And uh, sometimes it involves sort of optimizing people. Um, I've had patients who've needed um, cardiac procedures or other procedures uh, in a timely fashion um, to help them survive the treatment we need to do. Um, so it's a matter of thinking through these things, planning, and moving quickly. We obviously don't want to delay patients' cancer care. In terms of the surgical approach itself, um, generally speaking, a pleurectomy decortication has been found to be the best option. And so what that is, is that's the removal of the lining of the chest wall, the mediastinum or the compartment in the middle of the chest. So it's generally the, the removal of the lining of the pericardium. Sometimes it involves removing the pericardium itself. That's the sac that uh, surrounds the heart and the lining that is overlying the diaphragm, the muscle that separates the chest and the belly. Sometimes that involves removing the diaphragm itself and, and then putting things back together. Um, in rare circumstances, we do have to remove the lung. It is uh, less common than we used to think. Um, it tends to be situations in which the tumor really invades the lung and the lung's sort of dead, so to speak, anyway. Um, and in all of these circumstances, the key again is making sure you do the right surgery for the right patient. It needs to benefit them and it needs to not to hurt them uh, or, or maim them, as I sometimes say. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of go back to one thing that you said, um, because I do get this question actually quite often from either um, patients or people who think that um, they, they could have mesothelioma because of symptoms um, or uh, past history of exposure. But um, what truly gives a diagnosis of mesothelioma? So I get a lot of people who think that there is a blood test available that you can do to diagnose it. Um, so from your perspective um, and, and from the mesothelioma medical perspective, what gives you that diagnosis? Such a great question. Um, the holy grail of um, early diagnosis and screening and detection is some sort of blood test. And, and we would, we're you know, we're getting closer every year, um, but we're not there. So to, to, to just be very specific, there is currently no blood test that can diagnose mesothelioma. The we often say in medicine, tissue is the issue. And so the tissue and the tissue in the plural space, and I do mean tissue, generally speaking, the fluid itself is not always accurate. I'll come back to that. Um, 
but tissue, the actual pleura with the tumor has to be um, biopsied. Uh, and, and sometimes that requires more, you know, a needle, sometimes that requires pieces surgically. Um, and it has to be reviewed by pathologists who know what they're looking at. Um, it's certain features under the microscope. It's certain um, kind of, uh, we call them receptors and, and stains that are used, certain processing that recognizes certain features that are very specific to mesothelioma and rule out other cancers. So there are things about how the little cells look under the microscope that can masquerade as other types of cancers, specifically as lung cancer that has spread to the pleural, to the chest lining. Um, and those are treated very differently. Um, a lot of patients who have mesothelioma will show up with fluid that we call pleural effusion. That's fluid in between the lung and the rib cage. And people will sometimes refer to this as fluid on the lungs or water on the lungs. It's very specific. It's between the lung and the rib cage. There should be nothing in between there. And these people and these patients, sometimes fluid piles up in there. And that's often the first um, sign. Their symptom might be shortness of breath, sometimes even pain, but that's the sign that, that a physician will find um, that is concerning for mesothelioma, among other conditions. It doesn't mean they have mesothelioma. And when that fluid is sampled, it may show mesothelioma about 40% of the time. So meaning if somebody has mesothelioma and they have that fluid and that fluid is sampled, still only about 40% of the time it'll show it. So it's that you see why it's not um, as helpful, or we call that sensitive, meaning when somebody has a disease and the test recognizes that disease, we call that the sensitivity of that test of detecting that disease. And for pleural fluid and mesothelioma, it's only about 40%. So a lot of patients will come to us having had repeated procedures of draining fluid. Well, this fluid was there, they drained out two liters. That's, uh, that's like a, a half gallon um, and it comes back and they do it again. And every time the fluid is either um, reactive or abnormal or benign, meaning not cancerous, and it's just the index of suspicion or the, the um, concern and making sure that we're not missing something has to be a little higher in people who've had asbestos exposure or other um, concerning things. So the tissue is sort of uh, the sort of gold standard of making that diagnosis. Um, occasionally, we can see that pleural fluid gets sampled and show mesothelioma, and it turns out people have something else. And so that's a little bit of a flip side of a similar coin, um, but that's why we generally need to get tissue to confirm that diagnosis. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very helpful because, um, like I said, I do often get um, that people think it's as simple as a blood test or as simple as a tumor marker, but we're just not there yet. We, we know that there are some that we can see some elevation in, but certainly not a diagnosis for us. So, so thank you for explaining that. Um, I appreciate that. I wanted to touch base on one other thing that you had said. <clears throat> um, so, a person with pleural mesothelioma, um, can they become a surgical candidate if there is minimal disease outside of the pleural space? Excellent and slightly controversial question. Um, you know, in the, in the modern era, when we have a lot of sophisticated therapies, we're seeing it more and more. And in some rare circumstances, yes, Yes, I, I would never say absolutely not. 
Um, we used to say it's never, there's never a role for it, but what we're finding, especially with some of these modern therapies, and we'll come to talk about um, the, the trial in particular that, that I'm excited about, is one of the signals we're seeing is that um, things that we do to the tumor in the pleural space may have what we call abscopal, meaning uh, it affects other sites of disease that are elsewhere, affects. Um, and so if we can get uh, things that affect that so that other disease disappears, there may be a role for surgery in that person. It, it's extremely unusual. So I don't like to say it, that this is the standard of care, but I, I, I've certainly had patients uh, in the last 10 to 15 years who've had um, lymph nodes in the other chest um, who've done quite well. You know, they get their, they get therapy, everything else sort of disappears. There's some residual disease that I can manage with surgery inside the chest. The key is there for somebody to be a, a surgical candidate or, or to, for there to be a role for surgery in that person, the disease elsewhere has to be controlled because what we do with surgery or even I often say with radiation is sort of local, meaning it, it surgery and radiation itself, generally speaking, only affect the parts that you operate on or radiate. And so it, it, that has to be taken into account. Um, and so if somebody has active disease elsewhere and you focus your attention just on the disease in the chest, particularly with surgery, you're gonna set them back. You're gonna weaken their immune system. And while that's happening, the disease elsewhere could, could spiral or could escalate. And, um, and so in order to do what's right for them in the big picture, you have to have something controlling that. And, and we'll come to talk about it, but some of these therapies are very exciting for their ability to sort of tee up controlling other disease or even preparing people for the development of other disease if it were to happen. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I you know, I get that question a lot too. People often ask me, um, well, what if they have distance, distant disease? Um, you know, well, why can't they just take out you know what's in the lung or, or you know where it started and and which is a very valid question um but obviously um to do that is a large surgery um and and at that point you're not watching what's happening everywhere else and we need to get that under control so thank you for explaining that and sometimes you're doing um not as much good if you're not um systemically fighting everything so yeah thank you that was great so I wanted to ask, um, because I know that you have a couple of exciting clinical trials going on there. Um, so what trials are you currently running at Mount Sinai for mesothelioma? Um, thank you again also for, for bringing that up. Um, so we, we actually have a, a few trials, one of which is focused specifically for mesothelioma patients. So I'll really focus on that. I will mention that we have other trials for, for patients um, in mesothelioma as well as other cancer spaces that, that we're putting, uh, that patients are eligible for. Um, for patients who, um, who are eligible for surgery, we, have, we currently have two trials with our focus being on the one that I'm running uh, right now, and that's uh, involving this um, poly-ICLC. Uh, it's, it's a vaccine, it's a synthetic vaccine, meaning that it doesn't come from any virus or any other uh, infectious agents. Um, it's, uh, it's actually an FDA approved drug that's used in the treatment of other cancers, but this is the first time it's being used in mesothelioma. So this is a phase one 
B trial, um, which just means that uh, we, have a, we have a dose that's been proven safe in other cancer settings that we are now using for mesothelioma patients, and we're evaluating whether it's safe um, and what side effects it has in patients with mesothelioma. Um, we inject this, uh, this drug, like little two cc's, uh, of it, meaning a very small injection, into the tumor itself. We do this under numbing medicine in a CAT scanner. Um, and actually, at the time that we do that, we take additional biopsies that are going to be used for research. So in other words, we use some numbing medication we, in the CAT scanner to see where the kind of thicker sites of disease are. We uh, stick this needle in, we take some samples out through that needle, and through the same needle, we inject this poly-ICLC. And, um, and this is done two to four weeks before surgery. Now, this drug has the impact of kind of revving up the immune system uh, with uh, both in a, in a sort of general way. In other words, there are some pathways in the immune system that, um, that can do things no matter what. And then there are some that sort of develop recognition of that person's specific tumor, like not just mesothelioma, not just uh, the particular type of mesothelioma, but actually that person's particular mesothelioma. Wow. And it sort of draws the immune system's attention while there's still disease in them um, to recognize it. Um, because this is a newer therapy and we don't uh, know whether it's effective in actually treating the disease, we don't want to delay what we call the sort of standard care therapies. And so in our practice, in my group, in our program, we, for patients who can tolerate surgery or are candidates for surgery, we, we go straight to surgery. So within two to four weeks, we go to surgery, we remove the disease. We then, uh, you know, from a sort of scientific standpoint, look at the, the specimens, meaning the tissue before and after, but that's sort of a side branch of it. Um, what we're anticipating clinically and what we're starting to see um, is that uh, then they go on to have whatever treatment they would have, whether it's radiation or chemotherapy or both. It sort of depends on the individual patient and the individual situation. And we have a multidisciplinary team, so these decisions are made together. Um, but what we've seen, first of all, it's been, you know, we're about uh, nine or 10 patients in, everybody's tolerated that, you know, some people get a little low-grade fever, sort of feel a little flu-like for a day or not even. Um, so it's well tolerated. Um, by itself, we're not seeing much. Um, but when we give those additional therapies, we're seeing that there have been patients who've had disease that we didn't realize was outside of the chest. In other words, as you're following patients, they may develop other sites of disease. And we're seeing those just disappear. And so our theory, and, and, you know, we're still putting together the data. We, this is, you know, to do this in a scientifically rigorous way, we need to, do, you know, we, we're actually currently writing another protocol to evaluate that specific question in terms of the effectiveness. Um, but our hypothesis and what we're, what we're sort of seeing both in the lab and a little bit, uh, you know, anecdotally in patients is that it seems to rev up the immune system to help support other therapies so that even not just where we're operating or where we're radiating, but in these other locations, it, it, we're seeing responses to chemotherapy and other drugs that we've, that we've never seen before, this abscopal effect that I described earlier. So wow. it's, it's pretty exciting and, and not, not something I've ever seen before in mesothelioma, having been looking at this really closely for years. Very exciting. Now, 
to get the poly ICLC vaccine, does your tumor have to express something certain or um, that's not even? That's the beauty of it. And that's such a great question, Shannon, um, because a lot of these targeted therapies and immunotherapies are um, in other cancers, especially based on certain expression of you know, you and I know the jargon, but for, for all of our patients, basically certain signals that the tumor has. And in mesothelioma, they have high signals for this, where these therapies should be super effective in mesothelioma, just like, it, but they're not. We're seeing, you know, great results, melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, certain, you know, something called PVL1. A lot of people may see um, commercials for some of these drugs. Uh, I don't know if how, how, if I can say trade names or not, but, um, <laughs> You see them out there. Um, but in mesothelioma, we're finding they're effective in some patients, but not the ones we would expect based on the expression, based on the, the things that we see in other cancers. What we see happening here is some tumors are just cold, like they don't respond the way you'd expect. This poly-ACLC seems to turn those into hot, um, meaning that they're able to respond in that way. And it right now, we don't uh, see a particular pattern or, or sort of uh, blueprint for who is responding and who's not. But we are seeing that these people, these uh, tumors that were otherwise not responding are. Yeah. And so by itself, I, I you know, it, I don't know, I wouldn't say much about it by itself, but with other therapies, it seems to take it to a much more effective level for, for that reason. But right, right now, we're not seeing specific um, biomarkers that suggest one person benefits and another doesn't. Wonderful. Um, as far as the trial that is open right now, how many patients are you looking to accrue in that trial? Um, so, uh, so our sample size is 18. Um, so it'll, it'll close at 18. But as we're sort of on the back half of that, um, because it's been open for uh, almost two years now, um, we're, st we're opening up another trial, um, so that we we look to have another one open, um, actually probably two, um, both for patients who are surgical candidates who will get sort of neoadjuvant therapy, meaning therapy before they get surgery, as well as for people who might, who aren't, we're, we're opening up a trial for patients who are not surgical candidates too, so sort of complete the picture of the profile, what we have available, because we do, we're, we're pretty excited about what we're seeing. We want to make sure that patients can benefit from it. Wow, that's wonderful. So as of right now, the trial that is open, um, they do need to be surgical candidates. They get the vaccine, um, which is injected actually into the tumor, and then they go to surgery somewhere around four weeks later. Yeah, um, two to four weeks. Two to four weeks, okay. And then um, they can go on with some sort of adjuvant treatment if necessary. Um, but you are hopeful in opening up two more trials and one will be for non-surgical patients. Exactly. Wonderful. And with those non-surgical patients, they will be pairing this um, vaccine with something else. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, with, with sort of the, the treatments that have been shown to have a role in mesothelioma. Um, we often say there's no exact standard of care. Um, we've seen some exciting things with um, uh, both cisplatin pemetrexid-based chemotherapy, um, IPI, NEVO, immunotherapy, particularly certain type of cancer. So it would be paired with those. That's the trial is to um, pair it with what we're calling standard treatment for 
unresectable mesothelioma, meaning mesothelioma that can't be removed, at least up front. Now, do we know how um, this poly-ICLC, do we know what is it made up of, um, you know, why are we using it, I guess, in, in the space of, of cancers? Um, it's a protein. Um, it, it's just immunoactive. It's, it's been shown to sort of generate certain uh, immune cells to, to bring them in, you know, just not to use too much jargon, but dendritic cells and K cells, sort of T cells. Uh, um, it, it just sort of draws things in. The, it was originally uh, in one form that was sort of um, improved for stability in terms of injection. Um, uh, and it was uh, used initially in the space of glioblastoma. That's a, a brain tumor that some people may have heard of that's known to be um, devastating. Uh, and it's had some success there, which sort of clued people in that it might uh, have some role for some aggressive or, or difficult to treat cancers. Yeah, great. And when are you hoping, um, I know you probably can't say for sure, but um, maybe in the next year or so for the for the other two trials? Yes, yes exactly, exactly. Great. Yeah, there's a little bit of, um, there are processes done to protect everyone, <laughs> particularly patients that, that sort of have to be met in terms of the IRB and our scientific review and, and that sort of, and, and funding. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and is there somebody in particular that patients should get in touch with if they're interested to know if they're a candidate, um, you know, to get in to see you as a referral um, or somebody on the team? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of the point person. Um, I have a whole team. So people, I, maybe at the end of this, we can share both um, my, my email address and the phone number for my MISA program, which, which is my office phone number. Um, I, I'm sort of the point person and, and I'm happy for people to reach out. Um, it, I think it's important, that especially um, patients and caregivers to have access to, to everything. The, you know, people should never feel um, compelled or obligated, but I, they need to be informed and, and they get to be armed and they get to ask questions. And I, I feel very strongly about that. Um, Yes, definitely. And I am assuming that on your um, mesothelioma team, um, there is some sort of a social worker involved as well um, to help those people maybe from out of state that would want to come and see you, um, you know, getting that sort of help as to where to stay and, and those types of things. Exactly, exactly. There are some resources available. We have great, a great social worker involved in the program. Um, and we do see a lot of patients from out of state and even out of the country. And so it, it's something we're sort of able to at least help navigate. Um, because We have a nurse navigator as well as a social worker who can help um, coordinate that. Yeah, great. Yeah. And we as a foundation also do have a travel grant um, for patients who want to travel to see one of the experts um, in mesothelioma, as well as if they were to go on to the clinical trial, um, we do support some with that too, um, to try and help offset some of those travel costs. So, so yeah, um, something That's amazing. That team, yeah, 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 absolutely. I've, oh. It's something that um, has been important to me since uh, since since my beginning. Uh, I, I have been I operated on my first meso patient as a resident 18 years ago, um, and it's something that I've had a very specific interest in for over 14 years, 15 years now. Um, and it's something over the years that I've seen. I 
the idea that somebody may not get the care they need based on resources, finances, access um, is horrifying to me. And so I've always been um, inspired by, impressed with, and helped contribute and try to form programs that can do that. So the fact that some, you guys are amazing. Marf is amazing for doing that um, because it's critical. Um, it, it helps reduce the disparities. I published this paper that showed outcomes were different for, for black patients with mesothelioma than white patients with mesothelioma, and it's, it's unacceptable. Um, and it was, uh, it was tied very closely to the ability to have surgery. Um, and so um, at least having the options and you can help reduce these disparities um, and give people choices. Absolutely. And I asked this question um, of many of the doctors when I, um, when I interview them, especially uh, when it pertains to a clinical trial. But for you, um, for a patient that would say to you, why would I be on a clinical trial? What would your answer to that be? It, it's a very personal decision. Um, the most important thing is that the person feels that they have options, but not obligated to do that clinical trial. It is very important that the clinical, you know, depending on the phase of the clinical trial, it, it has to be thought that it would benefit them more than it would harm them. Um, it has to be a question that's being investigated. It has to be generally thought to have an equal likelihood. Uh, you know, we call it equipoise. And we would never want to test um, some drug that has an unknown effect, um, but takes away other options from that person. So particularly if something is known to be helpful and the likelihood is that it'll benefit that patient, then a clinical trial offers that patient a potentially better outcome. But you have to make, weigh that against whatever risks are involved and, and whatever side effect or impact of that clinical trial is. If, that, if it involves um, a significant hardship to them for whatever reason, it has to be considered. It's a very personal decision. Um, so clinical trials should offer the patient options. It should not be they're getting a certain treatment because that's the one that that provider is interested in looking at. That, that's the wrong reason to be involved in a clinical trial. And the provider needs to be, they need to be seeing a provider who's willing to do treatment either way um, to make sure that the priority is the patient and how the patient's going to do. Um, if the clinical trial offers them an additional option that is thought to benefit or is thought likely to benefit them more than harm them, or at the least won't harm them at all in a significant way and might benefit them, that it's sort of a very important individualized risk benefit calculation. So that's question. Yeah. And one other question um, that I get quite often is um, in this trial, and, and I get this about most all trials, um, there is no placebo, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And so the trials involving placebos are, are phase three trials where we're really looking at the impact in terms of whether it's recurrence, progression, recurrence-free survival, or some survival endpoint, meaning wh whether people do better on that drug or not, those are the, the, that's like the highest level and the best test for some of these things. Um, you know, a randomized control trial. And the purpose of the placebo in an ideal world, it's blind and nobody knows who's gotten placebo and who hasn't. So it even reduces uh, other what we call confounders or sort of confusing things that can that can affect um, interpretation of results. Um, 
but a lot of this is moving so fast that you know we we do things like window of opportunity trials and trials in order to to look we're looking at the primary endpoint of this trial has not it sort of has nothing to do i hate to say it the primary endpoint is not how this drug does the primary endpoint is just making sure it's safe to give a mesothelioma next step is making sure it's safe to give with our other standard therapies and then the step after that is really to see what the results are and for phase two trials which is in between what this trial and this ideal phase three placebo control trial um the phase two trials sort of look at how therapy does and you compare it to his, what we call historic standards and if you start to see something that really looks good in, in an ideal world you would do a randomized control trial with placebo a lot of i i'm an epidemiologist is my other hat um, i have a master in public health and so a lot of us think this way in an ideal world we'd be doing all sorts of randomized control trials some of it's not practical and and some of it would take um you, you would have a hard time sort of recruiting to and getting long enough in order to do safely. Um, so we, there's a famous example on this trial. Uh, it's uh, the concept of nobody's ever done a randomized control trial to test whether parachutes or no parachutes. <laughs> you know, the placebo where the, you know, the parachute doesn't open. I mean, you think it's gone up, but surprise. And, and you know, nobody tests whether that in a randomized control way. And so that's a very famous joke in epidemiology and, and even biostats about um, you can't always get that placebo controlled data um but there are other you know if there's enough data to support doing something that will still give it that can still change practice um and and in the future we may do some placebo controlled trials with this but we're still in the early phases Excellent yeah. question. thank you thank you for um explaining that i i try to explain to people that um especially in the oncology world um generally if there is a placebo involved it's involved with another with standard of care or or some sort of treatment um most most trials do not give placebo versus a drug um because obviously we're wanting to control the cancer or see if we can um further treatment with the cancer so thank you for explaining that i appreciate that um, well, I want to thank you for coming today. Um, we've loved having you. This has been a great session. It's been very eye-opening. I think this trial is, um, wow, it's it's very amazing. And, and hopefully we're going to see even bigger and better things come from this. Thank you. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks for what you do for our patients. Thanks to the organization for what you guys do for our patients and help helping raise awareness, support the patients, and support further research and, and getting Get, getting this, we got to improve the survival for this disease in a good way. So please reach out if you have any additional questions and thanks for your time, Shannon. Thank you. Thanks so much.